From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. A cancer diagnosis will change the projection of one's life forever. Along with their family, a person will face challenges, risk, and decisions they never have before. In her work, Dr. Megan Underhill of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute considers the importance of understanding a family's perception of risk after a cancer diagnosis and the related genetic and treatment decisions that follow. Dr. Megan Underhill is a nurse scientist and interim director of the Cantor Center at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Underhill, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Your research focuses on cancer, but not on the disease itself. Could you describe the focus of your work? Sure. So the focus of my work is to support individuals and families that have risk for cancer, due to inherited factors. So uh, there are many different cancer syndromes. Um, Most commonly you hear of cancer syndromes, uh, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, um, colon cancer syndromes. So there are um, inherited syndromes that are caused by changes in a person's gene that come from their mom or their dad, and uh, they that places the individual at risk for cancer. So the individuals that I work with uh, in both research and practice may or may not have ever had a cancer diagnosis, but they're living with increased risk for cancer due to um, those familial factors. You also do work around genetic testing and how patients make medical decisions based on genetic testing. Um, what kind of what kind of decisions are people making um, and what kind of genetic testing are, are people undergoing? Sure. Well, first is the decision to get genetic testing. So um, individuals that have these striking family histories where many generations uh, may have been impacted by cancer or multiple cancers uh, are often recommended to uh, talk to a genetic counselor or a genetics professional to understand their risk a little more and then potentially make a decision about genetic testing. So so there's that. There's understanding risk and being informed enough to then move forward and decide what's best for you. And often what's best for you now can change over time. So there's that decision. And then from genetic testing um, comes then a cascade of kind of decisions. So a person who has cancer may make different treatment-related decisions. A person who does not have cancer but has cancer, is identified to have cancer risk through genetic testing, may choose to do certain cancer prevention behaviors or increased surveillance depending on their type of cancer risk. So genetic testing um, is a decision that we work around, but then comes the medical recommendations that stem from the results of genetic testing, which lead to individual decisions where often there's not really one right answer. Could you tell us about your early career background and how you got interested in this area of research? Of course. So I'm a family nurse practitioner, a registered nurse and a family nurse practitioner. And my uh, practice has always been working 
um, with individuals and families. And so early on, I was working clinically, um, really actually in an end-of-life care setting, and found that um, a lot of my time was being spent with family members who were then worried about their loved one, also worried about what their loved one's illness meant for them. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, I received some additional training in cancer genetics at Roswell Park Cancer Institute. I had a really great privilege of having access to these incredible experts who were willing to share their time uh, and meet with me and just kind of expand my own understanding of cancer genetics, which at that time for me was very new. Um, I, un I, I was very interested in the familial experience, but the genetic component of that I had to grow in. So I um, both clinically and you know didactically learned some things about cancer genetics um, and was working with genetic counselors and geneticists through this program and realizing that you know uh, the patients that we were seeing, we had a lot of biological information to give them. The rest of it, though, was kind of left to their own device, so we didn't have a lot of psychosocial type support to offer individuals and families who were being uh, faced with this complex new medical uh, situation or healthcare situation. And so I was really drawn to research in that area of how we could support patients and families. That's what nursing practice does, and that's also what nursing science does. The, the focus of nursing science is to really um, support individuals with their experience in health, whether that be cancer or cancer risk or being a caregiver to somebody with cancer. Um, we we kind of support patients along that trajectory. And so it was really fitting for nursing science to kind of enter into this cancer genetics space and uh, understand how as you know genetic science is rapidly evolving we can keep up and make sure we're supporting individuals to live with the information and live with it well especially in if you think of nursing in the context of precision science it's really very interesting because nursing science and nursing practice really always looks at the patient in context the patient and family in context and as a whole unit mm -hmm. and so the work that we contribute through nursing science really helps to, you know, make the information relevant, accessible, understandable, and um, actionable. So uh, we work very collaboratively with other, you know, other disciplines, including medicine, um, social work, all sorts of different members of the team. Collaboratively, I think everybody is advocating for the patient. It's just really um, a different focus. And so nursing and nursing science really um, has really a holistic focus that understands not only the biological information and the, and the um, cancer and cancer genetics information, but how that applies to the individual and how it may or may not fit into the context of that individual's life where they're at in that moment. And so um, nurses in the clinic and nurses scientifically work to really come up with solutions and strategies to make this information meaningful, useful, and applicable. And that's kind of what my my aim is, is to understand um, w what this information means to the individual and how we can then support them with it. And so it's really quite uh, collaborative with all the different specialties that are involved in cancer care. Could you talk about how your background in nursing and nursing science informs your work and maybe gives you a different perspective? I think that my background in nursing and nursing science um, really places the patient at a different position 
in this relationship. So, so my work really focuses on the patient as the expert and the key stakeholder that drives the research question. Um, and nursing science really always stays grounded in that, um, that patient experience and that patient voice. And I, that perspective I, is unique because it um, is contextual, focused on the individual, the family, and um, coming at it from the frame of view of the patient. We want to make the healthcare setting um, a more productive and meaningful and empowering place for the patient, whatever that may mean to them. And so as nurses get involved in these teams, I really do see nursing science kind of as the champion for the patient. And maybe and not only just for what the scientific questions are being asked, but for how the study's being conducted, um, where the study's being conducted, and who's involved. I think at every level, um, nursing science kind of has a great you know, position to provide a, a, a good, um, to, to be informative and to help drive that that question you mm -hmm. know you know you are more than just one thing and so looking at that whole picture how do we support the whole person and how do we connect the individual with the resources needed to support that whole person or how do we build interventions and research questions that look at an individual within the context of where they're coming from and not just as one at one component of mm -hmm. it um and in my work that's what we do we we you know, I work with individuals, you know, my research is aiming at understanding what the lived experience of what it is like to have increased risk for cancer um, and how that fits into an individual's life so that we can understand that over the trajectory of life and come up with ways to make it more meaningful. If you think of nursing science, I think that's the essence of it is we look at the whole person, mm -hmm. um, nursing practice and science. And I and that's critical, especially if you're thinking of translating um, scientific findings into reality. Um, that piece is just absolutely critical mm -hmm. because information is only useful if it's accessible, meaningful, and relevant. And so nursing science kind of helps bridge that, I mm. think. Was there like a moment that crystallized your interest for you that you saw like, I really, I really want to be that person my mom uh was a nurse she i guess she's still a nurse but she's retired uh and so i kind of knew a lot about nursing um and i loved the idea of working with people and so i uh you know took a course in college and then fell in love with science and thought wow so this is something where i can work with people that's grounded in science you know that's really interesting to me um and then you know, I think that when I got into actual patient care, I was hooked because I got to see the application of that science in the real in the real world. And I, you know, it's really gratifying to work one on one with people, and you can it's it's like immediate gratification because you can do something right then and there, really simple to make something better. And so, um, and then what drove me to nursing science was I had a lot of questions about how we could do it more efficiently, more effectively, and more patient centered. And so that's what led me to nursing science because, you know, nursing practice, you can change individual and family. You, you can make really meaningful change at the individual and family level. Nursing science, you can make it at a larger scale. And so um, that's what kind of drove me forward to that. But um, I don't think there was one moment, but there was, uh, you know, um, 
a lot of different moments that all got together. And then um, once I had that patient care experience, I was like, yeah, this is for me. <laughs> Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics, including grant writing, mixed methods research, and omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Introduction to Mixed Methods Research course. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu slash online learning. So you're working with people whose family members were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, pancreatic cancer is a is one of the is it the highest morbidity cancers? It's kind of one of the most deadly cancers, maybe. Yeah, and it it's it is so. Um, well, let me back up. So, yeah. so I work um, both from a practice side and a research side with individuals affected by cancer risk. And my most recent research uh, has really focused in the domain of pancreatic cancer risk, though. The thing with cancer syndromes is somebody might be living with pancreatic cancer risk, but they also are living with other cancer risks too. So it's kind of, it crosses the spectrum of disease. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about genetics is mm -hmm. it kind of fits everywhere. Uh, and it can often fit everywhere at multiple, at the same time. So patients are kind of living with all this stuff at the same time. Um, but the, the work that I've been doing that's focused on the patient's experience with pancreatic cancer risk kind of comes from the fact that we are rapidly changing how we approach pancreatic cancer care and uh, include, included in that is the, you know, doing germline genetic testing on patients that have pancreatic cancer, which then has this really wide implication for family members. And unlike um, the space of breast and ovarian cancer, where sometimes there are some concrete things we can tell people to do to manage that risk and ways to support it. Pancreatic cancer is a really big evolving field. So, so we're starting to learn if surveillance may or may not work, but we don't really have the answer yet. So it's a really uncertain space for people to live. And so to me, it was important research to do to understand the patient's perspective so that we could figure out the best way to support them through it. A lot of times when we're entering into a new place of research, we start with some qualitative work where we really sit down and talk with the experts, which in my work is the patient, uh, and hear from them what they need. And so we did some qualitative work with patients that have pancreatic cancer risk to learn what they need. Um, and, and it was really striking that this is a different narrative than some of the other cancer syndromes we've worked in because of the rate of death. Right. You know, pancreatic cancer is so deadly and so severe that to be a family member of somebody who dies of pancreatic cancer and then be told that you also have risk for that same disease is really striking and very uh, powerful. And so we have to identify and address that grief process that's happening for these families to help them. If we're going to help people live well with cancer risk, that has to be a component of it, especially for this type of group. So we kind of learned, uncovered some of these needs, came directly from our patients, um, hmm. which was pretty powerful. Is that the qualitative aspect that you're talking about, the patient interviews, is that something that um, is typically done in other cancer research or is that something that you um is that something that you found you needed to do in this case so qualitative research uh is done you know um across the board nursing science does you know value qualitative research so do, oh, the social sciences really do utilize uh qualitative research um 
I work in a team. So I work in the, the Phyllis Cantor Center at Dana-Farber. We are a nursing team of nursing and patient care services researchers. So so I work within the cancer genetics group, but my research also happens within this you know center. And our work, we always use a variety of methods. We don't just use one because we recognize, again, that people um, – tell their story in a variety of different ways. So sometimes sitting down and hearing, you know, sometimes you can check a box on a survey and it doesn't give you the full full picture. And so then by sitting down and talking to somebody, you get a lot more. Um, I think that in cancer genetics, it, you know, it didn't start out to be a method that was used commonly because it really was focused on identifying the genes. Still is to a large, you know, large component of it is identifying genes. But if you're going to figure out what these genes mean to people and what, what mutations in these genes mean to people and how to address needs associated with it, you kind of need to hear from them. And so um, we use qualitative methods a lot when it's a new problem that hasn't been researched a lot. When we're starting a new program, we're trying to understand, do a needs assessment. Really, that level of in-depth data collection is so valuable. And so that's when we tend to use it. And I think the method is you know, mixed methods is a big thing right now. And I think the method is gaining more and more traction because, uh, you know, we're moving towards implementation science. You know, we've now spent decades identifying genes. We now need to get the science out to the people and help it be utilized. And so these type of methods can really help us understand the best strategy to do so. So I think it's gaining more value. Um, but I've always used it because, again, you know, I... I may have expertise in science and in health from a nursing perspective, but if my goal is to improve an experience, it's the patient that has the expertise in that. And so I need to work with patients to hear from them, and that method tends to be the best way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you talk to people, one of the things that you're getting at is their perception of their cancer risk. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that you know genetic testing can have an influence on that. What are some of the other things? What are some of the things that influence a person's perception of their cancer risk? There's a lot of different factors that go into it. I think within this um, area of work, you know, at least in my work, I've found that the family experience really is critical. So we can provide objective, and I, I have air quotes, you may not see it on the podcast, but objective um, numbers that are moving targets as we learn more about some of these genes, but we, we do have pretty good data to, to know what the risks are associated with particular gene mutations. Um, but that may or may not feel uh, true based on your family experience. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you're told that you, know, you have a 17% chance before the age of 80 to have a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, but your father and your brother um, and maybe an uncle died of pancreatic cancer, that risk feels a lot more like 100%. And so you can, objective data is only one part of the puzzle, but that, that lived experience really does play a role in how risk is perceived. You know, there are other kind of demographic-like factors. So risk perception can be impacted by education and, and knowledge. Uh, it can also be impacted by factors such as um, personal and family history, cancer worry. So there's a lot of different factors that go into how somebody perceives risk. I think within the realm of familial risk, that family experience is key. Could you talk about the components of the patient's story, like what you 
what kind of information do you gather to to put that story together? So it's interesting. So in qualitative research, we really let the patient tell us what the story is. And um, I can give an example of, of my early work mm-hmm. where I talked to women who had um, breast cancer risk. Mm-hmm. And um, even in the context of, you know, having a, a mutation in a gene associated with cancer is rare, but it, it, it in these families, it's not that rare. And um, even then, in that context of having a gene mutation, oftentimes the fact that the person had the gene mutation didn't come up until much later into the story. And the person starts with really giving their family story. So that family experience is key. They tell you at length about their experience with family cancer, uh, cancer related death, uh, being a caregiver to somebody with cancer. That story really gets laid out. And that helps drive the actions that they take to then combat their risk. We, in our research, and, you know, practically can harness that information to help understand where the person's coming from to help make a decision that is based on their own values, needs, and preferences. Uh, Not just what we think is best from a medical standpoint, but what is best for them in the context of their lives, what they've seen, and where they're going. Uh, So gathering their whole story is really critical that includes where they've been, so their family history, their personal history, their experience with all of this, and where they're going, so what they're thinking about moving forward in terms of having children and having a family of their own and what they've thought about this in their own lives. And so that's understanding kind of the foundation where they're coming from in terms of cancer risk. And then it's taking the, using information that comes from genetic counseling and also genetic testing, should they choose to get it, to, to even then create a more powerful message about what can be done to then manage risk. So using genetic testing as one piece of information to help empower somebody to, you know, uh, promote health. Uh, Because we have recommendations that can help people live well. We can prevent cancer. We can reduce risk. We can detect it early. Um, We can do a variety of different things that we know work um, given the information provided through some of this testing. What you just mentioned about people making those decisions and you're giving them the information and they're making the decision based on their values. And I think that what our research has tried to do is uncover maybe what some of those values, preferences, and needs are. Mm -hmm. Um, So really understanding the impact of having this information on a person and their lives. So understanding the level of distress associated with... um, familial risk. And and sometimes, especially in the context of pancreatic cancer, this is in the absence of a known gene mutation. This is just looking at the family history. Um, You know, science isn't perfect. We haven't identified everything yet. And sometimes you can see the striking family history, but still not put a finger on what the exact cause is. But -hmm. but nevertheless, there's a need to worry about risk. And so um, it's really uncovering what is associated with some of these perceptions or these these feelings and worries, uh, distress, that sort of thing, and also behavior. So what type of factors are associated with somebody actually getting genetic testing or actually then following up with the surveillance recommendation that's been provided? Because that helps us understand where to intervene in this process, and Mm -hmm. that's, I think, where my research is going, is we have um, medical guidelines, we we have tools, but it's really intervening to help people use these tools in the most appropriate way for them and um, providing them the 
both both personal and external resources to do what needs to be done to promote health. Mm-hmm. And in some ways we have a, a lot of resources and in other ways we don't. And so our research intends to kind of build those resources for people. What are some of the issues right now with genetic testing? Mm-hmm. Cancer genetics is kind of rapidly evolving. Uh, and now often, I'd say quite often, if not the majority of times, when patients come into the clinic to get genetic counseling, they're offered a panel of uh, a panel test where there are multiple genes that are assessed uh, for changes, not just one or two, um, often even you know a hundred genes. So there's uh, as science evolves, we've identified more genes associated with cancer, which has led to changes in testing, and so now. Um, the way in which the genetic counseling experts have to approach this is changing. And so I've been really lucky to collaborate with um, pretty, you know, uh, paradigm-changing genetic counselors and physicians who are really invested in doing this the best way. And so um, we worked to understand what individuals who have recently undergone multi-gene panel testing took away from that testing, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they may recommend differently, and also um, the impact that that had on them. And so that that was something that I worked with a team. Um, you know, I led the team, but we really collaborated closely to try and figure out the what the needs of the patient were as it was evolving, um, because it was clear that the way it's been done historically wasn't going to work anymore. And so how, could you talk about a little bit more about the historical aspect and maybe describe how things were done and what that, like why, why they, why that wasn't going to work anymore. Yeah. And I, I have to note that, you know, um, in terms of, in, in the, in terms of like scientific, uh, timelines, like I'm relatively new to this, you know, this has been what I've been doing the past decade, but my colleagues who I just mentioned have been doing it for many. So, um, I can tell you, the story that I understand, but this yeah, is maybe and because I I was thinking, you know, you talked about changes, and I was just interested um, the changes that you've seen in yeah, since I mean, you so, started. So you know, when I first started in this, like when I told you I was working with started my dissertation, um, we were really focusing on measuring, you know, uh, doing genetic testing for like BRCA one or BRCA two, which are the genes that we know the most about in terms of breast and ovarian cancer risk. They were identified in the early 90s. We now have multiple decades of research about outcomes with people that have these mutations and then what interventions work and what interventions do not work. So, and that's still, you know, the most common gene mutations that we see in the breast and ovarian cancer space. And there's also colorectal cancer gene mutations as well. And we have data on that. These new, and so the counseling framework around that was really um, clear. You know, you knew what genes you were testing for, and you knew, depending on what the result of the test was, what the recommendation would be, and what the outcomes from, if you did that, rec- you know, if you got an, your ovaries out because you had a BRCA1 mutation, what that would mean for you. I mean, it was the, I don't want to minimize the complexity of it, but it was, there were, there were, there was data. Now, when we have hundreds of genes that we can look at, um, there's data on some and less data on others. And the clarity around what to do when a mutation is found or what the outcome of the test will be and what the recommendation might be from that um, is a little less straightforward. And so, 
it's impossible to pre-counsel somebody about what the potential outcomes and then recommendations will be for 180 different genes. You, you know, that's just not feasible. So the field, the genetic counseling field anyways, has kind of shifted to think, what are the core elements somebody needs to know to make an informed decision around getting genetic testing? And then a lot of that targeted and tailored counseling comes after once we learn the result. So give somebody the big picture. Um, and I should also add that now that we're testing more genes where there's not an, as much data, there's you know an increased likelihood that we're going to find a change in a gene that we don't actually understand what it means, especially in people who are of a diverse ethnic or racial background because there's even less data there. And so the complexity of the results kind of um, is a little is increased. And so how you approach counseling somebody needs to change. And uh, coupled with the fact that genetics now cross-cuts every aspect of cancer care, and therefore the volume of patients who need this type of counseling has increased dramatically, um, it just warranted a change. And Dana-Farber has always been a leader in driving that kind of change. And so in this case, they are as well. And what is, uh, so what is the change that's going on now? So we're thinking of novel ways to prepare somebody to get a genetic test that doesn't always involve a face-to-face -face counselor. There are a variety of different ways to do that, both in, you know, that are being researched and also are um, just being done in practice. So video counseling, telecounseling, using um, uh, web-based applications to provide this information in an interactive way, a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. it, it never removing the counseling or healthcare provider piece from it, but just changing where they're positioned. Could you talk about what you hope to see as more and more data gets collected and um, methods for analysis improve? What do you think the field looks like in five, 10 years? We will be able to be a lot more specific about risk to the individual. We'll be able to not only look at the whole gene and like a change, but we'll be able to really drill into what the actual mutation is, where it's located, how it interacts with other things in the individual and in the environment, and really be a lot more specific about individual risk, which will then um, help make really specific health recommendations. And so I see that evolution happening. I see um, genetics continuing to expand and being a part of the of cancer care across the continuum in a, in a larger way. And I also see it um, moving into the community as well. So I see, you know, genetics just becoming more mainstream. It is already, um, but maybe more so, but also much more specific as our data and our technology get uh, a little, get improve, continue mm -hmm. to improve. Where I hope that my work fits in all of that, uh, both from a practice side and a clinical side, is that we continue to look at this information in context and in relation to the whole person, and that we help support uh, the individual to interpret that information in a way that is meaningful to them um, and leads them to towards actions that are based on their own values and preferences, and that we help you know, have a focus, a genetics focus that is really not illness focused, but wellness focused, and that we can really use this information to promote health and wellness um, in individuals and families. That's really where I see my research, um, you know, moving and also 
you know, practically that's where I think nursing practice can play a pivotal role. So both science and practice really focused on a wellness model because ideally that's what, in, outside of a diagnosis of cancer, what this information can really drive is the promotion of health and wellness. And so that's where I hope we continue to grow. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for asking me to come on in. Next time on Think Research, we're able to do a kitchen walkthrough with someone who has complications of their diabetes. We get to go through their fridge. We get to go through their freezer. Instead of having a talk about what to eat and not what to eat in the hospital, we can harness family members, caregivers when we're in the home, and it can really look a lot different than in the white walls of the hospital. Dr. David Levine of Brigham and Women's Hospital explains why sometimes the best place for someone who is acutely ill is at home. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.